Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we hear from Fidelity digital asset strategist Megan Chen as she walks through the current market environment and the latest trends and issues in cryptocurrency. Megan speaks to Colin Randall, Director of Research, and gives an overview of Bitcoin and Ethereum and how it's holding up as the year comes to a close. She says Bitcoin and Ethereum have outperformed traditional equity classes in the third quarter after being down 60% and 65% respectively at the beginning of the year. Megan also discusses the effects of inflation on cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is the largest cryptocurrency by market cap, but is also highly volatile. The volatility comes from the fact that it is still an emerging technology, so as it matures, it could actually become an inflation hedge. In addition, Megan also touches upon tornado cash, decentralized finance, and provides a broader market outlook in terms of developments in the digital asset space. This podcast was recorded on October 21st, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects. I'm Colin Randall, Director of Research at Fidelity Investments Canada. Despite the extraordinary volatility we've seen in digital assets this year, Q3 was marked by several interesting and important events in the space, including Bitcoin and Ethereum outperforming traditional equity and fixed income markets, albeit over a short time frame. This is prompting some observers to ask whether the so-called crypto winter is nearing an end, or if instead this is just a temporary pause with further volatility to come. Joining us today to discuss these recent developments in digital assets and what they could mean for investors is Megan Chen, digital asset strategist at Fidelity Investments Canada. Megan is responsible for the research and development of new alternative products, including digital assets related solutions, and she's a digital assets subject matter expert here at Fidelity. Megan, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, good to be here. Excellent to have you here. Just a quick note for the audience before we begin, this will be the first of a quarterly update that we'll be doing with Megan on trends in the digital asset space. Uh, We will be really focusing in on key developments in terms of uh, where the markets are heading. Won't necessarily be focusing deeply on the underlying technology, but for more information on that, of course, please consult your sales team. And we also have a a number of great resources on fidelity.ca to help you with that fundamental uh, knowledge building around digital assets. So Megan, let's start off with some markets. I mentioned off the top that we've seen um, some interesting outperformance among digital assets in Q3. Looking over a longer time frame, so year to date, you know that performance has been not quite as stellar relative to traditional markets. But could you talk about how Bitcoin's been performing, Ethereum, and more broadly digital assets in recent months? Sure. So since the beginning of the year, Bitcoin and Ether are down about 60% and 65% respectively. So definitely not 
uh, great performance. A large part of this drawdown actually happened in the second quarter. Now, one factor that's been driving this drawdown has been macroeconomic pressures on risk assets more broadly. So the correlation between cryptocurrencies and risk assets, such as stocks, have picked up quite a lot over the past year. Now, given their historical volatility, risk assets like crypto tend to be sold off when investors look to de-risk their portfolios. And another consideration is now that traditional yields have picked up with the increase in interest rates, uh, DeFi yields and or cryptocurrency-related yields are less attractive in comparison. So that's on the macroeconomic side. And secondly, on a more crypto-specific front, there's been a series of negative crypto-related developments um, over the past two quarters or so. Now, notably, the collapse of the Terra blockchain in May. Now, previous to its collapse, Terra was once one of the top blockchains by market cap. So its collapse had quite a negative impact on crypto markets more broadly. And in June as well, there was um, a series of insolvency concerns that emerged around multiple crypto platforms, such as Celsius, Voyager, Three Arrows Capital. Uh, Celsius is a cryptocurrency lending and borrowing platform. Voyager is a crypto broker. Three Arrows Capital is a crypto-focused hedge fund. Mm -hmm. These three entities um, have since filed for bankruptcy, and there's been other similar entities as well that have run into insolvency concerns. This, too, has weighed on crypto prices. But to put these things in the context, um, the collapse or the insolvency of platforms such as Celsius is largely due to the problematic risk management practices employed by these firms, as well as the increased withdrawals that these platforms have seen given the increased market volatility. But the key takeaway here is that these are centralized companies. And their insolvency or their failure does not actually call into question the underlying value proposition or the functionality of blockchain technology. Right. So, so these negative headlines that we saw, certainly around the springtime area uh, of this of this year, um, really were you know impacting prices to the negative uh, earlier in 2022, but more recently, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, we've seen Bitcoin and Ethereum in particular outperform traditional markets. What's driving that? Sure. So in the second quarter, Bitcoin and Ether drew down 60% and 70% respectively. Um, so they underperformed traditional markets in Q2. In Q3, there was a rebound, um, specifically in Ether prices. So Bitcoin has stayed more or less flat throughout Q3. Um, Ether went up about 30%. So down 70% in Q2, up about 30% in Q3. This is largely driven by something called the merge. So the merge refers to the transition of the Ethereum blockchain network from something called proof of work consensus to uh, proof of state consensus. So to take a step back, what are consensus mechanisms such as proof of work or proof of stake? So basically because blockchain networks are decentralized, there's no central point of coordination. So this means that all blockchain networks, such as Bitcoin or Ethereum, need something called a consensus mechanism in order that all the nodes on the network can actually agree with one another in terms of what the blockchain looks like. So two main types of consensus mechanisms, uh, as we've mentioned, proof of work is one, proof of stake is the other. Bitcoin uses proof of work, and that's actually more commonly known as Bitcoin mining. So some of you um, may have heard of that. Um, proof of stake, actually is now the new consensus mechanism used by the Ethereum network. Ethereum has moved to proof of stake for two main reasons. Number one, 
proof of stake is much more energy efficient than proof of work. So after the transition to proof of stake, Ethereum is now estimated to consume about 99.9% .9 less energy than it did before using the proof of work system. So that's one key reason. The second key reason um, for this transition is that the move to proof of stake actually tees up and helps prepare the Ethereum network for all kinds of future upgrades that they have planned related to making the network more scalable, um, which means making transactions faster and cheaper on the network and so on. Mm -hmm. So that was the positive sentiment around the merge really drove up Ether prices in Q3. That was the main factor. However, you'll notice that the merge happened on September 15th. Right. And since September 15th, the price of Ether has actually fallen mm -hmm. about 20%. Right. And uh, this is for a variety of reasons. One reason has been macro-driven. So again, we've seen risk assets draw down more, more broadly since September 15th. The other factor is that there has been some uh, selling pressure from Ethereum miners selling um, just accumulated Ether that they have stored. So that is actually going to cause more of a short-term pressure, I would say, than a long-term pressure, because the total amount of Ether actually held by Ethereum miners um, are make up only about less than 1% of total Ether. So. So, so just to summarize, so what, what was happening during the summer, particularly for Ethereum, um, mm -hmm. Ether being the, the currency of the Ethereum blockchain, that there was a lot of excitement, I guess, leading up to the merge. It happened, mm -hmm. as you said, in mid-September. And once that merge, I think by all accounts, went through successfully, mm -hmm. there's sort of sell-on-the-news kind of activity right. that we're seeing. Exactly. Okay. By the rumor, sell the news. Right. Anyway. Got it. Um, well, so, you know, you mentioned the macro uh, pers uh, sort of landscape earlier in, in, in our chat. And obviously, inflation is a, is a key um, driver of markets right now. Bitcoin has been put forward as a potential inflation hedge. And I think looking over the last year or so, I think, you know, it's, it's easy to criticize that Bitcoin hasn't necessarily held up to that promise. What are your thoughts there? Sure. So this brings us to the idea, the rather popular idea that Bitcoin is a form of digital gold. Now, the, to take a step back, uh, the reason why this is so that people have said this is because Bitcoin certainly presents certain characteristics that could make it a good store of value. So it is scarce. Its supply is hard capped at 21 million. We're currently at about 19 million. It's widely recognized. Um, it's the largest cryptocurrency by market cap, and there's a very large network that is backing it. Um, and it also has been very secure. Certainly it's proven to be very secure uh, in the past because the network has never been hacked since its inception in 2009. So all these characteristics um, make Bitcoin potentially favorable as a store value, which is why some people have compared it to gold as a good alternative transnational store value. Now, like you mentioned, if you actually look at Bitcoin's performance over the past, um, well, actually since inception, it has not quite behaved like an uh, inflation hedge because what one might expect from an inflation hedge is stability of prices, whereas Bitcoin has been highly volatile. And I think I would respond to that by saying, the Bitcoin, the narrative of Bitcoin as a store value is not an established narrative in the sense that it's behaving like a store value. It more suggests that Bitcoin is a potential emerging store value. Mm -hmm. And the volatility of Bitcoin can be explained by the fact that it is just an emerging technology. And there are many other factors that are driving Bitcoin's price besides just the inflation factor. So, yes, inflation could be part of Bitcoin's story, but right now there are many other pieces of that story. And it's making the price very volatile. It's hard to see 
that narrative right now. But maybe going forward, as this asset class uh, matures, as Bitcoin um, as an asset matures, we might see um, that narrative emerge a little bit more. Absolutely. Actually, interesting. Some some uh, news uh, of research that was circulating just this morning around the decrease that we've seen in, in volatility for Bitcoin as an asset class, actually similar to the NASDAQ over the last 30 or so days. Mm -hmm. Obviously a very short time frame, but interesting to watch uh, how that volatility profile you know, evolves over time a Bitcoin. We just actually received a question in from an advisor um, on the proof of stake move uh, that Ethereum has moved, uh, taken uh, with the merge and asking, do we, or do you, uh, Megan, see Ether replacing Bitcoin as uh, the number one crypto as a result of these energy savings? I think um, the debate between Bitcoin and Ethereum is certainly an interesting one. It's hard to say in the long run, in general, which blockchain network will end up dominating. But I will say for now that Bitcoin and Ethereum aim to do very different things. Bitcoin focuses on being a simple payments network. Ethereum focuses on being a general platform on top of which many different kinds of applications can be built. So the DeFi and the NFTs that you hear about in the media sometimes, that's on Ethereum and not on Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin focuses on being simple because the simplicity carries certain benefits. Um, the Bitcoin network is more decentralized because it is simpler to run a Bitcoin node. Therefore, it encourages more people to join the Bitcoin network because it's easier to do so resource-wise. Therefore, the Bitcoin network is more effectively decentralized. So it's a difficult, um, I would say that when comparing Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's important to keep in mind their differences. And it, is it possible that Ether one day replaces Bitcoin? Certainly, I think anything is possible. But um, it is, I think, um, important to keep in mind sort of what the starting point is of these two currencies. Right, they're, they're performing different functions. Exactly, as, they're performing different functions. Right, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so actually, you keep track of broad crypto adoption in mm -hmm. your quarterly newsletter. So I wondered if you could comment a little bit on what you've been seeing in recent months in terms of global adoption and whether there are any sort of key examples that you could point to um, that you know would be relevant to, to the audience. Sure. So one trend is that we've seen more and more traditional finance companies such as BlackRock and Fidelity start providing crypto ser services to their institutional investors. So actually BlackRock announced recently announced a partnership with Coinbase, which is a major cryptocurrency exchange, to offer their institutional clients direct access uh, to cryptocurrency. And Fidelity has come up with uh, various offerings as well. So one, one aspect is that Fidelity has, in the U.S., has started to has announced that they will um, offer Bitcoin in their 401k accounts. Mm -hmm. um, and Fidelity has also joined with various other companies, including Charles Schwab, to uh, develop uh, EDX Markets, which is a crypto uh, trading platform. And so I think through these examples, we see another example, actually, that I just thought of is, is NASDAQ, which um, also recently announced that they're going to start providing cryptocurrency custody services to their institutional clients. So I think the names like BlackRock, Fidelity, NASDAQ, the fact that these major traditional finance players are joining the cryptocurrency space is a positive indicator for the future long-run adoption um, of, of cryptocurrency. Um, at a more national level, I will say that cryptocurrency adoption has accelerated also in countries uh, like Argentina um, that we've seen over the Q3 more specifically. So in July, um, Cryptocurrency exchanges in Argentina started to announce that the, the stablecoin volume on their exchanges went up quite a lot. 
And the reason is because, uh, and this actually illustrates a, a wider narrative here, which is that crypto assets such as stable coins um, can be a good alternative for people in countries that are uh, suffering from hyperinflation. So the inflation in Argentina is about 95, it's going to be about 95% this year, it is estimated. And so many people have actually turned to crypto assets as an alternative to um, either their own government currency or um, to bypass the restrictions and the risks that are associated with opening a foreign currency account. And a very colorful example is that in 2001, the Argentinian government, in the midst of a broader economic crisis, in the midst of widespread capital flight and concerns around peso devaluation, froze bank accounts. They froze bank accounts and they froze withdrawals from US dollar denominated accounts specifically. So um, people in Argentina, citizens of Argentina, were unable to withdraw their US dollars. And basically, they had to wait until um, the peso lost its peg, devalued, and then they were able to get their money out. And so this occurrence has led to a lingering feeling of distrust, uh, in some sense, uh, among people in Argentina, in their traditional institutions. That's why I think the crypto adoption in these countries has been, um, the adoption curve has been steeper in, in, the, in these countries. But that illustrates a good example that crypto in general is meant to be an alternative system that's independent from governments, independent from traditional institutions, provides an alternative that people can rely on when they, you know, want to go around right, these right. systems. And, and so, and, and by the, the, the term stablecoin, this would suggest that it's not seeing the, the significant volatility you may be seeing in some of the larger crypto assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum. These these are cryptocurrencies that are really aimed at sort of tracking very closely a, a national fiat currency. Exactly. Yeah. So a stablecoin is a type of cryptocurrency. So they live on blockchain networks like Ethereum. Mm -hmm. But as opposed to Bitcoin and Ether that are very volatile, a stable coin aims to peg its value to that of another asset. Most of the top stable coins are US dollar stable coins, mm -hmm. which means that one US dollar stable coin aims always to be worth $1 American. Ideally, you should always be able to exchange one, say, Tether, which is the top stable coin by market cap for one US dollar. Right, right, yeah. got it. So I, another um, important, but I'd say maybe a little esoteric development that we saw in Q3 uh, was the sanctioning of um, Tornado Cash, right. which is an on-chain uh, or on Ethereum blockchain, to be specific, mixer of cryptocurrencies. Could you talk a little bit about what is Tornado Cash and, and what are the uh, what was the development in Q3? Sure. So this development is particularly significant and um, caused quite a bit of discussion, provoked quite a bit of discussion in the crypto community, because in August, the US government sanctioned for the first time ever in history, um, a decentralized blockchain protocol, namely Tornado Cash. And Tornado Cash is an application that basically helps users obfuscate their transaction trail on blockchains. Mm -hmm. So the background of that is that all transactions on blockchains are highly transparent. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I send 10 Ether to somebody else, that anyone can look at that transaction. Mm -hmm. And what Tornado Cash does is help users hide that transaction trail. Mm -hmm. And this, now Tornado Cash has been used, and it was sanctioned for this reason, Tornado Cash has been used in the past by criminal organizations looking to, to launder money, mm -hmm. um, including the famous North Korean hacking entity, the Lazarus Group. And so that was the key reason behind the US Treasury's sanctions of Tornado Cash. But 
Tornado Cash is always also widely used for totally legitimate purposes by users who are just trying to improve their own privacy. In fact, Vitalik Buterin, the co-founder of Ethereum, himself has admitted to using Tornado Cash in order to send funds to Ukraine, for example. So it is widely used for legitimate purposes, but it was sanctioned. Now, the noise this has caused and the sort of disturbances caused in the community is that this kind of brings to light a challenge to one of the key elements of Ethereum's value proposition. So Ethereum's value proposition is based on the fact that Ethereum is genuinely decentralized. Um, and a key part of that value proposition is that it's supposed to be highly resistant to censorship. This means that if Ethereum were really what it hopes to be, which is highly resistant to censorship, it would be absolutely impossible for a government to really sanction a protocol. Even if they did, basically it, it, nothing would happen, right? People would still be able to access it very freely. But what we saw was actually after the sanctions were imposed, various points of centralization helped make it very difficult for many users to access the Tornado Cash protocol. And this really goes against that principle of censorship resistance um, that Ethereum aims to offer. And so I, I would say the Ethereum community is actually aware of this, and this is why improving the effective decentralization of the network is really top of their agenda in terms of development moving forward. So hopefully we will see um, these issues addressed. Um, actually, one colorful development is that Coinbase, which going back to the crypto exchange, they are funding, they have announced that they will fund a lawsuit against the U.S. Treasury saying that they overstepped their mandate by sanctioning not an entity, not a criminal organization, but a completely neutral technology. Right. And they actually made the analogy, and I love this. They said, sanctioning Tornado Cash, I'm paraphrasing a bit, sanctioning Tornado Cash is like permanent, permanently shutting down a highway just because some robbers have used it to flee a crime scene. Right. So, I mean, you should ideally be targeting the robbers, not shutting down ac everyone's access to something that could be actually beneficial just because it's been used by a few people, you know, for bad purposes. Right. So we'll yeah. see where that goes. You know, it's fascinating. We're, 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 you know, when we're talking about here is effectively sanctioning code. Exactly. Um, and yeah. so, of course, this opens a lot of you know, new questions that need to be answered. And, and very interesting, you know, blockchain itself is so transparent. And so actually in, in many ways, it's very difficult for criminals to get away with, with misdoings. This was the function, I guess, that Tornado Cash was performing for some small percentage, presumably of users, but mm -hmm. um, definitely a lot of new questions that we're, we're tackling in this. Yeah. Um, wanted to talk about DeFi or decentralized finance more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, this is another area of the, digital asset space that you covered. Any interesting uh, developments there? And then maybe even before we talk specifics, what is decentralized finance? Sure, so decentralized finance or DeFi stands for blockchain applications um, that aim to provide financial services to users, but without the need for any centralized intermediary. So these services can be say asset exchange services, allowing users to swap cryptocurrency or crypto tokens with one another, or borrowing and lending services. Now, in traditional finance, um, most of this happens through centralized parties, central banks, you know, centralized brokers. But the difference with DeFi is that we, we sort of remove the need for any centralized intermediary. If I want to perform an asset swap, an asset exchange, if I want to exchange my, say, Bitcoin for Ether or Ether for another token, instead of going through Coinbase, for example, which is a centralized exchange, I can interact directly with an algorithm or program uh, called a 
smart contract-based decentralized application, but basically it's just an algorithm. You interact with that algorithm on the blockchain, um, and through this mechanism, you uh, through the mechanism of the application, you effectively perform the asset swap. Or mm -hmm. again, if I want to say borrow some funds instead of going to a bank, I can interact with this completely um, neutral application, uh, which is just completely code-based, and I can. Um, perform that borrowing lending that way. So it aims to basically take out the middleman. Right? Right. So that's right. what DeFi aims to do. Right, so so um, a decentralized exchange, for example, Uniswap would be an example, yeah. um, Aave, SushiSwap, all sorts of strange, yeah. interesting names, uh, colorful names uh, for these mechanisms. So effectively, they're performing the services of, I guess, a market maker um, um, and, and an exchange, but effectively, it's being run by code. Mm -hmm. um, not, not a centralized entity. Um, Megan, what are your thoughts about the future of DeFi sort of in relation to TradFi or traditional mm -hmm. finance, more, you know, finance as we know it in, in our industry today? Do you see these two eventually working together or, or can they even coexist? I think certainly they can coexist. And that's my expectation personally for what will happen is that we won't necessarily see DeFi replace traditional finance. It's not going to say drive banks out of business necessarily. What we will see is more of a coexistence of both centralized and decentralized infrastructure. And the reason is because both of these infrastructures have their own advantages. So uh, de decentralized infrastructure presents the additional advantages of increased transparency in the sense that anyone can look at the code behind these applications and look at exactly how it works. Whereas we don't have that level of precise transparency into the internal workings of a company, for right. example. So transparency is one thing, accessibility is another. Anyone can access these applications without any permission, whereas you generally need, need to have, get some kind of permission to say, um, you know, lend, borrow or lend um, through, through a traditional institution. So um, DeFi presents certain advantages, and I think that's why it will persist, because it does present a value proposition. At the same time, I don't think it will replace traditional finance, because for various reasons, people, for convenience probably, uh, people will always probably want some kind of centralized intermediary to, to help them through. And I think that, at least for now, DeFi is still very emerging. And traditional finance is much more established, can give users much more customizability, for example. Mm -hmm. It will be hard for someone to take out a 30-year mortgage you know, using a DeFi application, right? I mean, maybe we'll get there one day. Mm -hmm. But the point is that each of these things have, each of these systems, traditional, uh, traditional and decentralized, have their advantages, respectively. And so I do see a coexistence. The other thing is that I, not only do I see them coexisting, there is a possibility of them becoming increasingly intertwined. Uh, we've mm -hmm. seen traditional finance players move into the crypto space. And I think that um, if, if nothing else, blockchain can serve as an open and transparent settlement layer um, for, for different entities. So instead of each uh, organization keeping uh, their books separately, we have this ready-made um, transparent and uh, layer for different entities to come and settle um, settle with one another, and that that has benefits as well. So coexistence and and also potentially some some degree of integration. And it's interesting, actually, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the program around some of these centralized 
crypto focused uh, companies that have been you know going through insolvency bankruptcy um, it's it's interesting that while all of that turmoil was happening in the spring the decentralized the DeFi protocols seem to actually get through fairly unscathed so very very interesting sort of within the crypto space uh, to see how those different uh, those different mechanisms uh, work through the volatility maybe um, as uh, we're just uh, coming up on time, I want to make sure I get your outlook for uh, the broader digital assets market. What specifically are you looking for out on the horizon? Uh, and what should investors be thinking about in terms of opportunities in the digital asset space? Sure. So I think two dimensions that I look at quite a lot. One is development. So most blockchain networks are still very much uh, partially through their development roadmap. Ethereum, for example, according to uh, Vitalik Buterin, um, one of its co-founders, is only about 55% through their development roadmap. And I think a lot of what blockchain can offer is still to come. And to get there, there needs to be a lot more development efforts in, related to improving its decentralization, like we talked before about Tornado Cash, its scalability, um, as well as its security. So looking very much at the trajectory trajectory of these development efforts and and where to what extent that will support the robustness of the value proposition of blockchain the other aspect i look a lot at is policy so regulation um one question i get a lot from advisors is uh you know this space isn't regulated you know how can i introduce this to my clients if governments are against it and so on. And I would say that that, that is actually not quite the case. Governments, um, or at least many governments, such as the US, the European Union, the UK, Canada, are making regulatory efforts, legislative efforts, to try and bring in crypto assets into um, a broader regulatory framework and integrate it into the mainstream. So that's something I watch a lot. Some regulation, I think, is positive for the industry because it can foster stability say, of centralized actors that can play a major role in the ecosystem. Um, and so therefore, it can drive adoption. Right. But on the flip side, um, I think we have to be very careful as well, because unfavorable regulation or uh, enforcement actions like Tornado Cash can hinder the development of the space as well. Mm. So that's why I also look carefully at policy, because it can really impact, I think, the future adoption of these blockchain networks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Megan, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today uh, and sharing your insights on this constantly evolving and fascinating space. Um, I want to mention to the audience that if you're interested in learning more about digital assets and would like to receive Megan's quarterly report, please do reach out to your Fidelity sales team. Um, but again, thanks very much, Megan. Thank you, Colin. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.